0: netcasts you love
1: from people you trust
0: this is twit audio bandwidth for security now is provided by winamp for android the ultimate media player for your desktop and android device featuring wireless sync download it free at winamp.com android Video bandwidth for Security Now is provided by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 295, recorded April 6th, 2011. SSL and Epsilon breaches. Security Now is brought to you by Netflix. Watch thousands of TV episodes and movies streamed to your PC, Mac, or TV instantly. Plus, get DVDs by mail in on about one business day. For your free 30-day trial, go to netflix.com twit. And by FreshBooks, the easy online invoicing service that gets you paid quickly and makes you look more professional. Get started with a free package right now at freshbooks.com. And by Carbonite, backing up the files on your PC or Mac is safe and easy with Carbonite. For a free trial plus two free months with purchase, go to carbonite.com. Offer code security now. It's time for security now. We're starting a little late today because uh, of a scheduling uh, change earlier in the morning. We had a great triangulation with Corey Doctorow, who is a fan of this show. Hello, Corey. He was talking about listening to this show. Steve oh, cool. Gibson is... Yeah, isn't that cool? Steve Gibson yeah. is here. He's our security guru. <laughs> what a surprise.
1: I'm here for security now. Wow. That yeah. would be the 295th
0: time you've done that. Who guessed. <laughs> yes, yes. Episode indeed. 295. We are going to talk is. about uh, two big stories in the news uh, today. Um, the uh, the SSL uh, breach. At Komodo. At Komodo. Yeah. And the Epsilon hack, uh, which is uh, just breaking this week.
1: Well, and there's, I mean, there's even like, you've probably heard about this massive SQL injection, which has affected millions of links that Google turns up. Uh, Just a, it's a huge uh, automated uh, SSL injection attack, which is routing people to to sort of mid-tier companies' um, uh, websites to a malicious Your computer's been infected. Download this to fix your problem, kind of. So so we got
0: lots of news. I'll tell you how I I always find out about stuff like that. Uh, Now, I had read about that last week, but of course I got a million phone calls on the radio show. Well, not a uh, million, but, but but three or four from people who would gotten bit by it. If I get three or four on the on the radio show, you mm-hmm. know it's very widespread. So I'm glad we can cover that as as well. Steve Gibson, the man at GRC.com, creator of Spinrite Security Guru, author of a great many free security utilities at GRC.com, and uh, the host of our show. But before we begin, Steve, I do want to welcome a new sponsor to the show. First Yay. time ever. Yeah, I'm really thrilled about this. We've been Trying to get them on the uh, on network for years, literally for years, because I'm such a big fan, and I'm actually uh, my only fear was that everybody who could possibly ever listen to this show or any of our shows was already a member. I was going to say no one's ever heard of these people, before. <laughs> yeah. but I was pleased to hear that you are not. So this ad is for you, Steve Gibson. Okay, (laughs) and I'm talking about Netflix. I know everybody's heard of Netflix. Netflix is an amazing company that started out, of course, with DVDs by mail. That was a brilliant insight that their CEO had, Reed Hastings. He says it happened when he was in a computer science class many moons ago, and the professor says, "What has uh, what's the greater bandwidth?" Uh, a, a single fiber strand from New York to uh, Chicago or a truck loaded with DVDs <laughs> <laughs> And I tell you what if you tried to load that uh, tr- uh, you know m- send all those DVDs all those videos via um, that fiber you might actually lose to a truck driving to Chicago because there's so much data uh, on those. And when he had he that was the insight that, that led him to start uh, doing DVD by mail Now something's changed since then broadband has really become widespread. And Netflix is now doing a lot of streaming with their watch instantly. I am such a fan of Netflix watch instantly. Uh, And you know when they first started this a couple of years ago, I immediately started using it. You can do it on your computer. You can do it on your iPhone. You can do it on uh, your iPad. But you can also do it on a, a variety, a large number now of devices that are attached to your television set. I use a Roku box. But All the new Blu-ray players do it. In fact, it's kind of the gold standard. If you're going to make a box that attaches to an HDTV, you better darn well have Netflix streaming capability. Tens of thousands of movies. I don't know what the current count is. But if you go to Netflix.com and you click the Watch Instantly tab, you'll see a variety of movies, brand new movies. Netflix has a great recommendation engine, which has gotten better and better documentaries, TV shows. This is the thing that's exciting me. In fact, I just saw that today Netflix did a deal for all eight seasons of Mad Men. See, this is the way to watch TV. Instead of going, you know, there's no commercials, you can watch it instantly or add it to your instant queue, which is just like the Netflix queue. I have, let's see how many movies in my instant queue now. Probably several hundred. Because whenever I see a movie that I want to watch... I just add it to my instant queue. So there's the 234 in the DVD queue, but look at that 367 in the instant queue. But I don't have to take it from the queue, really. I can watch any movie that's there anytime. And I just have to say, I am a huge fan. Oh, look at Dragon Tales. Now, that wasn't me. That's the most recently watched. My son had a sleepover with some friends. My son is 16. I think they were fooling around. And then they watched Harpoon, Whale-Watching Massacre. (laughs) I have to say, I love Netflix streaming. For the whole family, you don't have to wait for the DVD to come in the mail. You can watch anything you want. And coming very soon, I'm very happy to say they've got a whole bunch of new TV shows. Glee just was added to the TV show list. That's really exciting. You can watch seasons of Glee. There's The Office and I'm really excited that Mad Men's coming. Are you not yet a Netflix streaming subscriber? Try it free for 30 days right now. Go to netflix.com slash twit. Now, I know most of you watching are already a subscriber. But give it a try. There are a variety of different subscriptions. One disc, two discs, three discs, five discs. I'm a five-disc subscriber. That's five discs at a time. And uh, when I mail one back, I get a new one. But all of those subscriptions include the Watch Instantly subscription. They even have a $7.99 a month Watch Instantly. That is the best deal in town. Netflix.com slash twit. Free for 30 days. Steve, can I get you to try it? It really does sound like a good deal. <laughs> it's you. a great deal. What's yeah. What do you like in Fringe these days? What is the, what is the TV show that you would oh, like fringe.
1: to Fringe, I'm, I'm hooked on. And
0: uh, uh, Okay, first three seasons of Fringe, all on there. All yeah. on there, so you could watch. You can go back, and I. What I love about it is you can watch it without uh, in commercial interruption. And in fact, what you can do, which is really fantastic, is consume shows like Candy, one <laughs> episode after another in one massive binge. Well, and I hate missing an episode. So right. you know, if
1: something happens and I miss something, it'd be really nice as you know just grab it and watch it as a fill in. I
0: never, I never saw any of Lost, but what I'm thrilled to see is I all. All the seasons of Lost, including uh, season six, seasons one through six, are all available on instant streaming. So if you really, (laughs) if you wanted to waste a weekend... (laughs) go back to the beginning and watch it all please give it a shot netflix.com slash i didn't mean to go on so long but i just love it so much and i would love for you uh, to try it and i can't believe that steve is not a netflix uh, guy i you you stun me steve well i'm old school i've got multiple tivos and all that so well, we'll is, the cool we'll, thing we'll, is we'll, all these new devices they have netflix on them so you know yeah. playstation 3 xbox 360 the wii um the roku box Um, PC or Mac, you can watch anywhere. I watch on my iPad. It's great. Anyway, enough of that. (laughs) Enough of that. Let's get to the security news because there was uh, another big story we didn't mention. Uh, Oh, well, there's a bunch of stuff.
1: We got to go back a little bit and just sort of mop up uh, the debris from the RSA big secure ID break-in that we talked about. um, I guess it was just last week. Um, Some new information has come out uh, from RSA. They're trying to paint it as a very sophisticated attack. Now, remember this again, I, I this is my most recent, my own personal blog posting, because what they initially announced and, and said was so annoyingly little <laughs> that no one knew what to make of it. Yet, they're like the major multi-factor hardware token provider for the industry. As you mentioned, lots of government and, you know, Fortune 500 companies use RSA because, I mean, they're, you know, RSA are the, the inventors of 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 crypto, you know, state-of-the-art um, uh, asymmetric crypto came from the founders of RSA. So um, the fact that they were being so circumspect led us to believe, okay, well, Sure, they're embarrassed. They may have some fiduciary obligations to their stockholders not to say too much. They maybe need to get word out to other people who can who, who can deal with the problem. Anyway, it turns out it was not a big league sophisticated attack. It was something we've talked about. And in fact, I've been talking about for the last couple of weeks before this, somebody opened an Excel file oh, containing no. a flash
0: Oh, no.
1: (laughs) That's all it was. Uh, It was a a so-called spear phishing attack, meaning that what RSA did reveal is that two small groups within RSA received some email that was targeted at them. So it was written to encourage them to open it. Well, it went, it was automatically routed into their junk email folders. So it wasn't even on their map, but one of the employees in one of these small groups looked in her junk mail folder and, and the email was titled 2011 Recruitment Plan. And she opened the email and there was an attachment 2011 Recruitment xls," making it in a Microsoft Excel spreadsheet. That she opened, and that allowed a Flash movie, an Adobe Flash file that was embedded in the spreadsheet with a, at that time, unknown exploit, a zero-day flaw, which Adobe has since patched, that allowed it to run, and um, that installed a well-known Trojan which is freely available on the internet called Poison Ivy. It's right. a it's it's a so-called RAT, an R A T, a remote administration access tool toolkit Trojan, which which then phoned home. That is, it called outwards from her machine um, to a remote server that gave bad guys essentially the ability to do anything that 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 she could do from her machine, they could do. And that's all it took. That was their foothold in RSA, and the rest, as they say, is history. Jeez. So it it was from it was. I mean, it's and I had been talking about you know flash in, in embedded Excel spreadsheets for quite a while prior to this because this was a well known problem that that had been that had been um. Successfully used in spear phishing attacks that have been going on for several months, and unfortunately, RSA was one of the victims of that. And this is that's all it took for for someone to get enough access to their network that they were able to get credentials, elevate their um, elevate their access as necessary, and then exfiltrate what is now known to be. The, essentially, the keys to the kingdom, these these master RSA files containing the mappings between the publicly available serial number of tokens and the secret key, the cryptographic key embedded in these hardware devices. And as we know, at least one uh, major agency has dropped RSA. I mean, they, they can't trust their two-factor authentication any longer. And RSA's advice was, well, don't let anybody see your token and, you know, make sure all your <laughs> other security us. is good. <laughs> yes, basically, don't rely Stop on that us. second factor. <laughs> go, yeah. Now, what's weird is that that I had spoken to Stina Evansfard, our founder of Ubico and great friend of the podcast. About a month before, uh, at the uh, at the unfortunately or coincidentally the RSA Security Conference, she was out here for that. Is that put
0: on by RSA?
1: Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah, and but I mean, and and I'm sure funded and financed by lots of other people, but I mean, RSA is like the main. They have to be
0: so embarrassed by this. Yeah,
1: it was not good.
0: They're supposed to be the security
1: wizards. Well, so there's a technology. Known as HSM, Hardware Security Modules. And these things are typically $15,000 just to get in the door. The idea is, if you've got your servers spread around, like in data centers, and they have really, really, really important stuff in them, how do you keep them physically safe and protected and and network level safe. That is, you know, we as as we've often heard, the main breaches are from internal employee um, subterfuge and, and and sabotage of systems to even to a greater degree than is external. We don't normally hear about it because, you know, they're not network-wide sweeping, um, you know, automated attacks. But, but you know, much of the problem comes from employees. So how do you protect something from, essentially from yourself, but also from just, I mean, like if something is vitally important. So this was the problem that Yubico faced as their own yubikeys gained in popularity there was an they suffered an outage at one point earlier on in i mean like not recently but earlier on in, in in their startup history that you know we're largely responsible for causing because you know we helped stina you know get some some traction in the industry and that was a real problem for them i mean for their users because in order to authenticate a one time password device you need some authentication server somewhere that's able to say yep that's the next password in sequence that we would expect so they realized they needed to I mean they're still at, at this point a very small company i mean just a handful of people so they're thinking okay you know we need data we need to to replicate this database of basically of private keys Around the globe, we need, we can't just be, you know, in one location the way we are. It's time to get serious about this. But then they face the question, how do we protect these? How do we, you know, have a server in Silicon Valley and one on the East Coast and and a couple others in Europe? I mean, and, and the point being that all of these systems have to contain duplicate copies of everything so that, so that local users are able to authenticate against them, but the flip side is you have to keep them secure. So they looked into the whole hardware security module solution, and it turns out, I mean, it's like, again, it's fifteen thousand dollars just to, to open the door. But you know, you you have to have typically um, you you you'd be repeating this everywhere and. And, and you end up with, like, physical security and data level security. Well, what they decided was, uh, Jacob, their, their lead techie person, said, um, why don't we put this in a USB stick? Like, put everything that's, that we have to protect in a USB dongle. And let's build a cryptographic processor and a true random number generator not just a pseudo random number generator but since we'll we'll have hardware we can do weird things like 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 measure the noise threshold in a diode which is actually generating quantum level noise and capture that and use that to generate cryptographic material and and i'm our our listeners can't see it but i am holding one up in front of the camera which is uh, this is marked beta 0.96 0.9.6 is the the ubhsm as they're calling it the it's the ubico hardware security module um, they have essentially solved the problem and reduced the cost of of protecting, literally, the keys to the kingdom, all the stuff that companies absolutely cannot lose control of, down from $15,000 to $500. So, um, and I, I imagine, I guess it, it does have, um, that's it, got their name on it. So they did some plastic molding. I mean, it looks, for, for the people who are not seeing the video stream, it looks like a regular USB um you know thumb drive yeah same size yeah it's it's all it is it's got the usb interface and so what they've built in here there is a processor and non-volatile memory and some fancy electronics that uses quantum level noise to generate true randomness better than you can generate algorithmically um if if our listeners are interested uh, just yubico.com. If you look at like what's new, I think is the first, uh, link on their site. It'll take you to ubicocom slash UBHSM, Y U B I H S M, where there's a lot of information. Um, uh, they're, they're still at beta at this point. The final device will retail for $500. Um, and you know, from their site, they explain that it contains a cryptographically secure, ran- true random number generator, a store for cryptographic keys. That is a secure place to, sco- to store cryptographic keys. Um, it 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 also incorporates a a complete U- uh, YubiKey key authenticator that has enough storage for a thousand YubiKeys keys. So, for example, if 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 you if you were a company that wanted to deploy Yubikeys yourself, but not rely on YubiCo for authentication, this little gizmo here can can, handle, can, can store your Yubikey's secrets. But you would you just you'd need a server. Well, yeah, exactly. So you plug this into a server, and the server, and so, 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 so the server passes to this. Got it. What the the, what 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 the YubiKey has just said, and it says, "Yep, that's good," or "Nope, that's not good." But the point is, you are. It's a black box.
0: It's a sealed black box that can't be modified. Precisely, it
1: is a sealed black box that cannot be modified, and um, they list some use cases for this, saying. You know, you run an authentication service, secrets are stored on a computer that has to be accessible from the internet and are are concerned that one day day it might be hacked. You want to prevent system administrators and staff who have physical access to the server from copying the database and getting access to sensitive data. Yes,
0: good point. Yeah,
1: (laughs) you need an architecture that prevents a hacker from compromising your secrets, but allows you to run your service full speed or you've got a smaller fleet of yubikeys and want to do the authentication yourself. So, uh just today uh, on April 6th, 2011, they have announced their UBHSM and if they are making available betas of these to interested developers who want who cuz they're they're soliciting people to flesh out The full specification to make sure they haven't forgotten something that might be useful to add. That's the right way
0: to do this. Absolutely. Get the security community to look at this.
1: Yes. So on their site, it says Ubico is inviting its developer community to refine the UBHSM and define the functionality set of the final product. Developers who would like to contribute with applications and further development of the open source client software can today apply to get a free beta UBHSM from Ubico.
0: That's fi- they they anticipate what about five hundred bucks to buy this?
1: Yes, they're saying that it'll that it'll be five hundred dollars, which is you know way below the the entry price by orders of magnitude. You know what, thirty times cheaper. Than a fifteen thousand dollar similar device, right. which is uh, the only th- uh, other thing available
0: now. Now somebody's saying in the chat, a couple of people in the chat said, "Yeah, but how, look how easy that would be to lose." Well, I don't imagine you'd keep that on your keyring. You keep it plugged no. into the server. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean it's in a data
1: center yeah. in a locked, you know, yeah. locked environment. But but remember, if RSA had 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 there these files
0: similarly protected ah, they, they could not have been exfiltrated right Unless and some, now even if somebody stole it it's useless to them right correct
1: exactly because you know it, it itself it itself is protected crypt- cryptographically and it can't be it cannot be induced to, through the api nothing there's nothing someone can do that can get the secrets
0: out of it so even physical access to the server isn't going to compromise it Precisely, yeah. But don't lose it.
1: No, well, no. I mean, it's, it's. I mean, you would have a couple of them, or or you would have this data backed up offline. Oh, you could
0: do that. Okay.
1: The point is, you don't want it online. Right. It, it is. It is you know, it's like it, it's like you know, I've never gone into the architecture of my own e-commerce system, but it you know, the data that we have is not available at that server. It's you know, I did it from scratch. You know the right way it's the and equivalent
0: of uh the cabbies ca- cash is not kept on premises ex- exactly <laughs> yeah
1: exactly and and unfortunately clearly rsa's data was accessible for oh, yeah. exfiltration <sighs> and and this is should be a lesson to all companies it no and what i like about what yubico has done is solving this problem no longer n- is necessarily super expensive. Right. You could imagine smaller companies, developers listening to this podcast, who are thinking, wow, you know, right now we're just hoping we're not hacked. Right. But if you move your stuff into, it, it, uh, you know, behind this kind of protection, then you don't have to hope any longer. You can know that you're safe against being hacked. Awesome. Awesome. And they've got a a, a PDF you can download that's got the entire specification of how this thing works, what it does, and how to talk to it. So I wanted to give everyone the heads up that this thing now exists. What a smart company. Um, Last week, I, I deliberately didn't talk about something because it just seemed unlikely to me. I got a ton of email and tweets from people asking about samsung's laptops (laughs) coming pre-installed
0: with keystroke loggers little pat on the back for us Uh because i saw that story and i did not leap on it uh and i know you didn't either i just something was fishy about that story well okay the good
1: news is our friend alex Eckleberry, uh who used to be at sunbelt but now is technically gfi's um, chief technology officer, because GFI, I guess bought Sunbelt, um, he stepped up with a blog posting that uh, I really appreciated. The industry appreciated it because um, they explained what happened. There this was this whole rumor of Samsung install Samsung laptops coming with keystroke loggers pre-installed was the consequence of a false positive from one AV product. And it was Sunbelts. It's their Viper, V-I-P-R-E. The Slovnian language directory, Slovenian, Slovenian, right. Slovenian, right. uh, Language directory for Windows Live was c colon backslash windows backslash sl, which was the same directory created by the star logger, thus S-L, Uh star logger keystroke logger. And, unfortunately, somehow, all that Viper was doing was looking for the presence of that subdirectory off of Windows to make its declaration. Now, Alex, in his blog... Posted, quote, the detection was based off of a rarely used and aggressive viper detection method using folder paths as a heuristic. I want to emphasize rarely, as these types of detectors um, and detections are seldom used, and when they are, they're subject to an extensive peer review and QA process. So they recognized. That in retrospect, just looking for the presence of a subdirectory "sl" was really not specific enough, and it did. No kidding. (laughs) Yeah, it, it would tend to produce false positives. In this case, it did, and it was that that sole thing was entirely responsible for the industry briefly going insane. And calling, you know, and, and accusing Samsung of installing keystroke loggers when, in fact, that wasn't the case at all. So, um, for, for all the people who were concerned, that's uh, essentially what happened. Yay. Yeah. Okay. Malicious code injection. Another event that's happened in the last week is the most successful SQL injection attack ever seen. Um, initially it looked like it was being reported as at least hundreds of thousands of websites, but a, a later a Google search for domain names known to be used by the attackers uncovered more than 3 million pages, web links, which were displaying, um, URLs to those domains, um, it was, um, not Webmon, um, shoot, I can't remember the name of the company that first, uh, uncovered, uh, they named this, uh, Liza Moon, L-I-Z-A-M-O-O-N, because that was the first domain they saw, WebSense, it was WebSense. WebSense,
0: that's right, yeah. Uh, yeah.
1: They that ran across Liza Moon, and, um... So they dubbed this the Liza Moon attack. But since then, 21 other domains were found. So what happened was someone created an automated SQL injector, which rummaged through all kinds of websites looking for
0: a an, an SQL injection vulnerability. And, and by the way, as somebody's saying in the chat room, this is not a new vulnerability they were taking advantage of. Right, right. It's an old just- one it was automated and that's what made the difference. Yep. So all that hap- all
1: that had to happen was that in your typical web 2.0 style attack, a web surfer, a web server does not adequately sanitize user submissions. It's supposed so, to, but that's just a, it's a mistake. It's a bug. It's a bug. And um, so so basically a spider, a web spider posted these these SQL commands, such that when the server tra- went to display the the, the the page containing the content that this spider had put up there, instead it it created links to these 21 uh, separate domains, which presented, the, a a dialog box saying, a, a pop-up basically, calling itself Windows Stability Center, looking like it was from Microsoft. Though Microsoft doesn't have anything called Windows Stability Center. And so these were, you know, uh, small businesses, community groups, uh, sports teams, sort of mid-tier organizations who, you know, were, were hosted you know, on, on any number
0: of providers. Everybody it, uses MySQL. Everybody. I mean, yeah, I, we well, use it. Yeah, I don't. But, yeah, I know you're everybody, smart. Everybody else does. I wish we didn't, but, <laughs>
1: yeah. You know, you, it's just you have to be extremely careful when,
0: when this is the kind of um, – uh, technology that, that that you use that you've got filters to illustrate that this is a, a a long-standing problem there's a great comic i'm going to show here from xkcd our chat room reminded us xkcd.com slash 327 hi this is your son's school we're having some computer trouble oh dear did he break something in a way did you really name your son robert tick Parenthesis, semicolon, drop table, students, semicolon, dash, dash, question mark. Oh, yes. Little Bobby Tables, we call him. Well, we've (laughs) lost this year's student records. I hope you're happy. And I hope you've learned to sanitize your database inputs. That is a very geeky comic, but boy, it says it right there. That says it all. Yep, exactly. (laughs) That's obviously an SQL command that says delete a table, the entire student's table. And uh, if you didn't... Check your inputs. If you allowed somebody to type that into a URL, well, shame on you. Right, because then when the server tried to
1: display it, it it would execute it as <laughs> if it were a valid command. Oh lord! And your SQL
0: database would drop that table. <laughs> Say from, yeah, whatever you want. Yeah. No problem with computers—they're very compliant. Hey, before we so, get to, uh, you want to talk about epsilon? No, go ahead. Before we get to epsilon, because this is a this is a, this is kind of one of like. Two or three big stories this week, I, yes. I, and it's and it's and one that got me uh, steaming. To be honest with you, in fact, I I kind of uh, really talked about this on the radio show because this is, you know, our audience is not going to get fooled by any of this. But the people who listen to the radio show are normal people, and I guarantee you, this bad advice from epsilon. Is not going to help them at all. But before we talk about that, I want to talk about FreshBooks, a great way to do your invoicing. A lot of you are in, uh, you know, business for yourselves, your contractors. You have to send out invoices. It's probably the least pleasant part of your monthly uh, labors. I know it was for me. I hated it so much so that I'd often forget to send them out, send them out way late, and then I'd forget to track them. And I just, you know, it cost me money until I found FreshBooks. Amber MacArthur told me about this uh, in two thousand four. And I use them for years. I now have people, but believe me, people <laughs> people are a lot more expensive than FreshBooks. In fact, FreshBooks is free for the first three clients. You can upload your company logo so it looks like, you know, you've got a very professional invoice. Most of the time you're gonna mail these, email these, but They do. They will print, stamp, and mail them for you if you want. That saves a lot of time. Some old-fashioned clients still want a paper invoice. But I love the electronic ones because there's a button right on the invoice that says pay right now. And they can use a credit card or one of 11 different online payment services like PayPal, Authorize.net, to pay you immediately. They can even set up automatic payment. Get the invoice, send the payment. And trust me, this means you get paid faster. Most clients just want to pay you, but they forget or they have to wait till the uh, cycle or what. This is so much easier. There's a great iPhone app and a web app, too, that allows you to track time and then zip that time right into the invoice automatically. So if you bill by hours, what a lifesaver this is. Uh, FreshBooks, it's free today for up to three of your clients. And I want you to try it right now because uh, uh, some of you who sign up already, some of our listeners have won this birthday cake. They are doing a drawing every day. To pick a birthday cake from a new customer, one of our audience members, doesn't have to be your birthday, and they'll send you the cake. And I've seen the cake, and it looks really good (laughs) if if you need another reason to try it. Freshbooks.com. Easy online invoicing. Trust me, this is the way to invoice. Okay, let's talk Epsilon. Okay, so Epsilon
1: is the world's largest permission-based email marketing services company. Who knew? I know. I've never heard of them. Who before. knew? Yeah, twenty five hundred clients, including seven of the Fortune ten. So seven of the of the largest ten corporations in the United States use epsilon to do their customer emailings. So you know when when we get email from well from one eight hundred flowers. A books, Air Miles, Ameriprise Financial, Barclays Bank, Beachbody, BB Stores, Best Buy, Brookstone, Capital One, City Market, <laughs> City Dillon's, Disney Destinations, in Destination. the seas, <laughs> Eileen Fisher, Ethan <laughs> Allen, Food for Less, Fred Meyer, Fries, Hilton Honors Program, Home Shopping Network, JC, um, JP Morgan Chase, King Super's, Kroger, Lacoste, L.L. Bean's Visa card, Marriott Rewards, McKinsey & Company, MoneyGram, New York & Company, QFC, Ralph's, Red Roof Inn, Ritz-Carlton Rewards, Robert Half, uh, Target, the College Board, TD Ameritrade, Ameritrade, TiVo, U.S. Bank, and Walgreens. Wow. They were all breached. That is, Epsilon is saying that 2% of its email clients, which 2% of 2,500 would be, what, 50, um, were affected. Well, I just read the list of known known clients who are now vulnerable to a much heightened uh, level of spear phishing. You know, the, the problem is that what was lost was that the email databases for those companies, so people that didn't is,
0: get they didn't get the credit card numbers or personal information. They just got email addresses uh, and names and names. And,
1: and that's the problem is that that there's now a, a, there's a much greater chance that you will click on you know a, uh, a Hilton Honors program email that knows your name. Hi, Leo. Be, be, How, yes. You know
0: your Hilton Honors program is about to expire. Want to renew? and Make sure those miles are still good. Click this link. Right. And then you log in, right? But it's not them,
1: right? So I mean, so it, it it because of the the breadth of this, I mean, this was a a huge breach of their database, and and once again, one wonders if they had protected this in a hardware security module of some kind, making it not available for theft. Then you know they wouldn't have egg on their face. Um, so. So other security blogs and, and uh, you know, security aware people are really are, are warning people to be especially alert for spear phishing attacks. That is from the list the, that I read, which is the most complete list I've managed. I, I pulled it from, from the a Times bunch of or, different or places,
0: different places. Okay,
1: Yeah. And that's why it's, I had to alphabetize it in order to, like, make sure I had lost any and to remove duplicates because um, there were so many companies there. But, you know, their email addresses are, their email lists are out along with the people's names. That is, whatever it is that you are, what you normally see when you receive email from these companies is it comes from the database that was lost. So the point is, that's what you'll see when you get fraudulent email and may be much more inclined to click on a link. So...
0: Um, so it's dangerous. And the funny thing is, uh, Epsilon gave boilerplate uh, language to send out. All these companies uh, sent out essentially the same email. Yep. Um, and, and unfortunately... Now, Ch- now, Chase's was pretty good. Somebody sent me the Chase email, and it says, we want to remind you, Chase will never ask for your personal information or login credentials in an email. As always, be cautious if you receive emails asking for personal information, et cetera. Many of these... And this actually, the Chase email was pretty good. It was pretty good. It, it actually said, don't click links and stuff. Most of these, the one that Epsilon seems to have sent out to everybody, said, uh, don't click links on email from people you don't know. Uh, but that's the problem. It's going right. to come from these companies. Right. It's not going to be from people you don't know. It's going to be from Citibank and Chase.
1: It's, it's, well, it, it, exactly. Essentially, the data that was lost that they've lost control of that that was exfiltrated from them is what they use is exactly what they use to generate the, the legitimate email because they're the people that send the email out on behalf of their clients. Right.
0: So uh, what is the advice? I mean, I know our audience knows it, but just to reiterate, I mean, well, it is, I would say if you receive email,
1: because email itself the the, the, the you know e- email is is displaying in a web page where the the url behind the link that you click can be can be masked
0: the it link can, also, can say citybank.com click here
1: yes and go in, to
0: hackercom Citibank.
1: or c right. i t y b a n k i mean a tiny change in the domain name takes you to somewhere else so i mean it's unfortunately it's really it is it is i mean and again this is what our listeners know it is just not safe to click on a link in email that you receive an email you 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 if you really have to for some reason you could look at the email headers maybe but unfortunately you got to be a real expert because we've we you and i have talked long ago on 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 tech TV shows, Leo, about spoofing email headers and how easily that could be done. So, I mean the, the the real the real news is read the email, then manually go to the to the website, entering the URL yourself, logging in not through email but you know using LastPass or or whatever you use for logging in, and and arrange to achieve the same end. But not clicking something that you receive an email. Ex- tra- treat the email as just the information that something is important that they're bringing to your attention. Like, oh, look, your miles are about to expire unless, you, and they, unless they hear from you immediately. Right. Generally, the, 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 the phishing emails use an emergency of some sort. To, to get people to act. They're not saying, hi, we just wanted to make sure you're happy with the service we're providing you because people go, yeah, 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 fine, delete. You know, it's, that they there's a call to action in, in spear phishing emails that, that is, you know, is, is presenting you with some dire event unless you take action and people go, ooh, and in, in the moment of worry, they hit that, they click on that link without,
0: even if they know better, it's like, oh, I better do this right now. It's like, you know, I've just, come so close because yes. they scare you. You click the link and it all looks legitimate. Uh, and then fortunately, in my case, I've always gone, whoa, whoa, whoa as soon as it asks you for anything. And you look yes. at the URL. But you're right. Hand type. The, the, that's what I told everybody in the radio show. So thank you for reiterating that. That's all you have to do. Hand type. Yes. it. Now, there is one in the chat room came up with this. There's one side benefit to the fact that Epsilon services so many of these big companies. You can go to their website and opt out of all emails with one click so uh if you go to epsilon dot com and or search for epsilon consumer opt out information there is as there is a page where you can say, "Don't send me any more crap well now are
1: those pr- only promotional emails or are those like you know true uh, account
0: you know account maintenance sort of emails uh well it its it's it's marketing emails oh okay so it says many consumers it, value and seek out targeted advertising <laughs> it, and look forward to receiving offers of interest at their homes via email. So uh, you can oh, that's choose. Amazing that you can opt out of yeah. 2,500. would you, know. you can choose not to receive most. It doesn't say all, but most targeted advertising by following mm-hmm. the links below. Consider your choices carefully. <laughs> Opting out of Epsilon Services will stop the delivery of some targeted advertising. Some spam is good. Uh. Right. (laughs) It will not eliminate all targeted offers, it says Uh, so much for that. But at least some I've been lately I've been unsubscribed. I've been on an unsubscribed tear. Anytime I get something, any bacon, I just unsubscribe, unsubscribe. And I'm hoping that that will take hold. Yeah. So um, the do not
1: track uh, movement is gaining some traction um, for people who use Twitter there is now an account. It's just at Do Not Track, and I am following it, and would recommend it for anyone who's interested. Uh, Mozilla blogged um, at the end of March that uh, you know since we've last spoken to our listeners through this podcast uh, that advertisers and publishers are beginning to adopt and implement Do Not Track. Um, specifically in in their blog post, and they said that the AP News Registry Service, run by the Associated Press, implemented the, the DNT header across 800 news sites, servicing 175 million unique visitors each month. And the Digital Advertising Alliance, which actually I care about much more, the DAA, which includes the five major media and advertising agencies, is initiating a process to explore incorporating the DNT header, as proposed by Mozilla, into its self-regulatory program for online behavior advertising. The DAA represents more than 5,000 leading media and technology companies that span the entire marketing media ecosystem. So the good news is... This is the same header that IE9 offers. Oh, good. That DNT colon space one. And I immediately contacted Giorgio, uh, the famous author of NoScript, whose headers were not compatible. And I said, hey, uh, looks like this has pretty much been decided. How about switching NoScript over? And he said, "Uh, Steve, I did that a couple months ago.
0: (laughs) What a surprise.
1: Uh, Oh, okay, good. (laughs) So the good news is if you and of course Giorgio reminded me also that that using no script to produce the header allows you to to allow some and disallow others so it gives you granular control whereas the other guys are just a blanket you know stick this dnt colon one header into every request made by the browser which i think is just fine so so if you haven't yet gone up to version 4 of Firefox, and I have not because I don't do anything immediately when this sort of thing happens. I'll wait a while. Um, then, But you are using NoScript. NoScript is now adding this DNT header, as is IE9. Uh, you have to turn it on in every case. Nowhere is it enabled by default. So you do need to opt into opting out. But at least it's there. And everyone, you know, all the critics say, yes, well, but it's all, you know, honoring it as optional. It's like, yes, it is at the moment. But, you know, these advertising agencies recognize that, you know, they risk having, you know, Uncle Sam in, in the U.S. case, you know, drop a heavy foot on them unless they behave well. Yes. Exactly. And so, yeah. And so it's, you know, th- this is, you know, if we, ultimately we're going to get a law. That says, if your browser says DNT colon one, you, you, you know, it is illegal to track you across the internet and we're not there yet, but that's
0: the right answer and it'll end up happening. And even if we don't get a law, the, the real problem is bad guys will always circumvent no matter what, but the yeah. good guys are going to try, you know, look, they want to stay in, people like Epsilon want to stay in business. They're not going to, uh, they're not going to, you know, flout, flaunt our, I, uh, right our requests. I hope. Right, a,
1: a, a clear and explicit request not to be tracked
0: behaviorally. The problem is, so. I just was following the rabbit hole of this epsilon opt out. Uh huh. They don't make it easy. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. They ask for and it's uh, it's non optional, it required. The header from the spam from the message that you not not uh-huh. who it was from. Not they want the entire header. Most people mm. will not know how to do that and will not do it. Right? Terrible. Just awful. It's-
1: So I've got a little bit of miscellaneous stuff before we get into talking about Komodo. Uh, This just crossed my radar, and I thought this was really interesting. Microsoft offered to purchase 666,624 IPv4 addresses. We're running out. (laughs) Out from the bankruptcy proceedings... Of Nortel. Oh, interesting. The bankrupt Canadian telecom equipment maker. So, Nortel's going bankrupt. They're a corporation that had a huge block of IP addresses. And Microsoft has offered, and apparently, I just saw something else that looks like it had been accepted. Seven and a half million dollars for their block. And was like, wait a minute. where? Since when... Are IPv4 addresses for sale? I mean, you know, they're you you get them for free when you have an ISP. So I'm, I mean, I'm interested in how how that can be regarded as a corporate asset. Why they wouldn't immediately return to the provider of Nortel's, you know, wherever Nortel got them from, from some registry? It's like, wait, 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 they're not property. They're they're sort of. I, well, I don't know what they are, but I don't know how you can buy them. But Microsoft's paying $11.25 each for these. And as you said, Leo, it's like, oh, no, uh, <laughs> we're running out of them. And I have seen other other um, notes talking about the emergence of a black market in, or a gray market, at least, or dark gray uh, in IPv4 addresses. Maybe I guess they're going to become worth something. Wow, I don't know how you can sell them. I you don't know can know how auction you
0: them, them off property. <laughs> but you know, what? it does change bankruptcy proceedings. You now actually have some assets that might be of some value. Yeah. Ignore that person looking over my shoulder. It's my son.
1: <laughs> Go ahead, um, Steve. <laughs> someone someone tweeted something that I really appreciated to me that I wanted to share. Just notice, noting, he said, Steve, you don't need to be quite so embarrassed. Skype's SSL certificate expired on March
0: thirty first. Well, it's about time.
1: <laughs> and, of course, caught them uh, with their pants down. Funny? It's happened to me. It's happened a couple other times to, you know, notable large organizations. And so you go, "Ooh, crap. And you immediately go, you know, with your registrar and renew your SSL certificate and get it up on your servers. So it, it does happen even to the big guys. Amazing. Um, I also wanted to just uh, note that there is a forthcoming uh, virtual machine solution to allow Android to run on Windows called bluestacks.com um, bluestacks. That's dot- cool. yes uh, it's not out yet um, they ask you to follow them on Twitter at bluestacks Inc so it's just at bluestacks Inc if you go to bluestacks.com you get a little flash video that plays and sort of shows you Something, some gra- some pretty graphics talking about the idea of, you know, being able to have Android apps running in a VM on Windows, which, uh, you know, so we talked about how Android was hosting a VM last week and um, would allow you to uh, use that in order to preview uh, Android apps. Uh, now you'll be able to do it locally, running them on under Windows. There is also something called android-x86.org. Which apparently has has this has made this happen also, but I'm told that it's much more difficult to get it up and configured and with video drivers and all kinds of weird stuff. So, with any luck, you know, a VM would be a great little solution for basically giving you a little Android machine running under Windows that you could run
0: Android apps in. I can't wait to do this. I wish it were, I wish it were there now, actually. Yeah, we'll
1: keep an eye on it. And yeah. uh, I did, I am following BlueStacks, Inc. in one of my following Twitter yes, accounts. Yes, so I see them. I, just,
0: I just followed them myself because I...
1: Uh, yeah, but you follow a 1,000. I know. Or, oh, I mean, 17,000 or something. <laughs> so you'll never know if it happens. But I'll let you know. I'm sure you'll know before I know, Leo. I'll let you know. <laughs> uh, that'd be very nice. And I wanted to mention, I got a nice little uh, note from a Neil Warwick, Uh with a, 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 a subject that caught my eye, saving, saying that Spinrite saves the sky. And I thought, okay, what? Okay, so, so in, he, he's in Reading, England. He's a Security Now listener. He sent it through the Security Now feedback form at GRC, which is grc.com slash feedback. He said, hi, Steve. Just thought you'd like to hear a short story about how Spinrite saved my sky TV DVR from losing all my partner saved shows. And probably saved me a lot of, from a lot of nagging too. In the UK, we have a satellite TV service called Sky TV that broadcasts many, many channels. And for most people, it's accessed using an, a hard disk based DVR similar to your TiVo boxes. A few weeks ago, our box started freezing and stuttering when viewing live or recorded content. We have an insurance package with Sky to cover breakdown, so I called them. Their only solution was to offer to send an engineer out who would reset, in, or, in other words, reformat the hard disk. And if that didn't work, would replace the DVR in, in its entirety. Having been a listener of Security Now since July 2010, when I saw it mentioned in a magazine, I don't know if you saw Spinrider or Security Now mentioned, he says, I started at the beginning well, I think he saw Security Now mentioned in a magazine. So in July 2010, he saw Security Now mentioned in a magazine. He says, I started at the beginning. So as I write this, I'm up to about episode 155. I've been looking for an excuse to buy a copy of Spinrite and thought, why not give it a go? 50 minutes later, Spinrite was downloaded and burned to a CD. I removed the hard drive from the DVR, installed it into a slave PC chassis I had lying around... And booted the CD. I set Spinrite to work immediately and went to bed. Upon getting up the next morning, Spinrite had finished and reported that it had fixed some errors. So I reinstalled the drive into the DVR and powered up. As you will probably have guessed by now, everything worked perfectly. When the engineer showed up to have a look, he couldn't find anything wrong with the system. So left without doing anything. I didn't tell him about Spinrite. Spinrite as I'm not sure if I'm allowed to open the box under my insurance agreement. Thanks again for a great product and great podcast. <coughs> Neil Warwick Awesome. Awesome. Says, awesome, P.S. I run a very small computer repair company and would like to offer a Spinrite optimization slash check as a service for clients, PCs, etc. That's a good idea. And can you tell me what kind of license I would require to do this and how much it would cost? Well, the way we've solve that problem is to ask people who want to run Spinrite on machines they don't themselves own or a corporation that just wants to run it across their whole organization. We call it a site license. And so we ask people to keep four licenses current. So, for example, Neil already has one. So if he bought three more copies, then he would qualify to use Spinrite on any drive that he wants to. A, that's a great deal. That's a, site a great license. deal. I think that's that, very fair. Yeah. Well, it allows people to try it, and then not, you know, like, and and then they don't have to ask for a refund, and and you know, if when, when they want to upgrade your a different license. So I thought, okay, let's just have them maintain four current licenses. So you know, when we have an upgrade, they can if they upgrade all four, then that's like a, upgrading their whole license. So the the plan works very nicely.
0: We're going to uh, take a little break, Steve Gibson, and then talk about uh, this uh, Komodo uh, SSL breach. Really interesting. Yeah. We talked a little bit about it, of course, last week, but the details coming up. Before we do that, I want to talk about backup, and I have brought into the studio today a couple of teenagers, <laughs> my son and his friend Henry, Hank and Henry. Hank, tell me something. Do you uh, do you remember what happened the other day uh, to your computer? Yeah, it deleted everything. Yeah, it, it crashed, and you lost the hard drive. And how much did you lose? A lot. All your music, didn't you? Yeah. yeah. All his sweet beats. All his sweet beats were yeah. lost. I was, I was you kidding. know, you can blame me. You should be, because I should have put Carbonite on that I computer. I put you. it on... Well, don't say that you hate me. Yeah, I... I was kidding. It's yeah. on there now. Okay. You're backed up now. Remember I told you, yeah, you're safe it's... from that I yeah, appreciate it. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. <laughs> I put it on Abby's computer when she went to college, and I should have put it on Henry's. He's been doing a lot of music. Just think what's on your hard drive, all the valuable stuff on your hard drive pictures, emails, financial records. Carbonite's great. You just put it on there, Mac or PC, and it immediately starts backing up to the internet where it's completely secured and always safe. Knock it off. <laughs> Never invite teenagers into the studio. <laughs> They're on spring break right now
1: Channel 4 news team It's Henry Sharon
0: There you go You want, well, you want a job on the channel 4 news team? I guess so. It's not going to happen kids Everyone you know. got to you got to work Don't on it squelch my dreams grow a mustache <laughs> carbonite.com backs it up in the background without slowing your system down without uh, without clogging your internet access it just trickles it up but you're always up to date you can log on anytime on any computer see your data so it's cloud storage too in fact they have an iPhone Android and BlackBerry app as well absolutely free and uh, and uh, your data is protected it's safe it's always there it's always Always. Uh, Henry, Henry, calm down. Just kidding. Uh, You know, when you were eight years old, I invited you into the studio at the Screensavers. You mobbed. You remember what we had to do? Mm, We taped your mouth with gaffer's tape. What? Why would you do that? You don't remember that? (laughs) Get the gaffer's tape! It's carbonite.com. Offer code security now. Try it free for two weeks if you decide to buy use carbonite use the offer code at carbonite.com uh, again security now and you get you two guys think i could do my two job months than he no does. he can't go away two months free i think that it's their decision for the price he's he's asking the he's asking the chat room to to to, to, to tell him that he can have a job here well okay. they're going to say do they're going to say yes of yeah, course carbonite.com shh we're doing a commercial this is the first thing you have to learn this is how daddy <laughs> makes his money he told me to get it carbonite.com <laughs> <laughs> Offer code security now two months for the price of 12 <laughs> right. Carbonite.com. Thanks for your time. Thank you, Henry. Bye, guys. And now back to our regularly scheduled programming already in progress. <laughs> Steve, you're glad you didn't have kids. You're glad you didn't reproduce, aren't you? It's worked out well for me. <laughs> All right. See See you later. You're on YouTube. You are automatically. So let's talk about this uh, Komodo breach. Okay, so here's there's a
1: really interesting backstory here because it wasn't initially acknowledged by anyone. What happened was uh, a researcher at the University of Washington's Security and Privacy Research Lab, Jacob Applebaum, um, he was just sort of, as he does, monitoring the chromium that is Google's Chrome um, browser, open source project, just sort of, you know, he just, he's like part of the, the change log, seeing things go by. And uh, in late March, he noticed sort of an odd thing had been added. A, a bunch of, of SSL certificate security um, um, uh, serial numbers had been put into the source code. And blacklisted. So there was an a function that had been added that that that, that said, you know, essentially see if certificate is blacklisted. And then there was an array of of serial numbers. The first one was commented as this is uh, just to be used for testing, but then there was like nine or ten others after it. And he thought, huh, that's weird. Why why would chromium be Like putting a block of certificate, SSL certificate serial numbers into the source. Um, Seems like a strange thing. And uh, this sort of just like raised his curiosity. And then at around the same time, he noted that Mozilla pushed out a security update. And he looked into it. And it was doing the same thing. It had some. uh, It it was a little bit thrown off at first because Mozilla's format has a zero byte um, prepended to the serial numbers, so a simple match um, didn't line up. But when he removed that that leading zero, then he realized that Mozilla was also blacklisting in a patch. A block of SSL certificates. Well, um, he hangs out at EFF, and EFF has something they call uh, the SSL Observatory, where they monitor the internet, looking sort of at traffic, sort of just trying to watch the way SSL is being used and seeing what's going on. They had the SSL Observatory had built up over time a big database of certificates. So so he was able to essentially process this list and and see that it appeared that all of these certificates had been issued by one certificate authority, something called usertrust.com, the, the URL in the certificate, was HTTP colon slash slash www.usertrust.com and that seemed to be a a subsidiary of some sort of Komodo. Huh. And so he he sort of thought, okay, uh, it sure seems to me like the only reason Chrome and Mozilla, would suddenly be blacklisting a block of certificates is that they're important and they're bogus. They're invalid. So he he sent a note to Mozilla who, uh, who said, uh, mm, <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Uh, something's happened that we don't want to talk about. And now, in fairness to Mozilla, they have since regretted their response, that they weren't immediately forthcoming. But what happened was there was some dialogue behind the scenes. What, what, what essentially happened, we now know, is that a subsidiary of Komodo, and Komodo has never even said whom, but we now know from this forensic analysis, um, one of Komodo's... Uh, Komodo is a so-called CA, a certificate authority. They have a subsidiary that they call RAs, registration authorities. And one of their RAs was hacked in some fashion, and we think we know how now. And, and a bunch of very high-profile websites got loose. And we're talking, well, a, a high profile certificates for websites were made um, illegitimately. Mail.google.com. So, an SSL, a valid SSL certificate for mail.google.com, for www.google.com, for login.yahoo.com, for login.skype.com for add-ons.mozilla.com, um, for login.live.com, which, of course, is a Microsoft domain, and something called Google trustee. Valid certificates for those high-profile domains were issued by this registration authority that ha- that has... Um, received its authority from Komodo. Now, um, the SSL Observatory, this this project that the EFF runs was was able to state that knowing knowing that these certs were signed by this user trust organization as of August 2010. so late last summer, 85,440 publicly transacted, that is, they've seen them on the internet, HTTPS certificates were signed directly by this user trust organization. That's significant because if, if we were to blacklist user trust, then... 85,440 websites would suddenly have their certificates that they had gotten from this user trust organization declared invalid. And they'd have to scramble around to obtain SSL certificates from someone else. So, um, after this became public... Oh, the the other thing that happened was that I first became aware of it when Microsoft issued an emergency um, update to through uh, their Windows update system. And it. looking at it closely, it was very clear that Microsoft was immediately adding a block of certificates to their untrusted list in Windows. I tweeted immediately to the followers of SGGRC that this had just happened... And gave them the link to Microsoft's security page, where you could choose which operating system you were using, and yourself immediately update your version of Windows so that it would no longer trust these certificates. And the next day, it it, it surfaced on, or shortly thereafter, surfaced on the standard Windows update as an important update that that users should install immediately. So, so Microsoft, Google's Chrome and Mozilla were all immediately updated. Now, the, the one of the questions this raises is, well, okay, don't we have a facility in place for revoking bad certificates? And the answer is, uh, kinda. It doesn't really work. Huh. And that's why all of these major browsers, well, these three major browsers... Were immediately updated, but what about less significant browsers? What about browsers that are not mainstream? There's lots of little offshoots that you know didn't get changed, didn't get motivated, that, that didn't get updated, um, that that you know aren't part of of the this central core browsers. Um, to what degree are they vulnerable, and to what degree are are their users vulnerable? So. What, the other thing that happened when news of this surfaced is that someone began posting on um, Pastebin. Uh, we've talked about Pastebin once before because there was um, – it, it, it's, it's a way of anonymously uh, posting stuff up to the internet uh, that, that anyone who knows the URL – then you share the URL and people can go there and, and grab what you posted – a hacker was claiming that he's the person who did this and put a bunch of, of code and certificates and things up in order to prove it. Several people have in fact verified because he posted the the he posted the private key which he used And that allowed people to verify that he was, in fact, the person who created these certificates. What apparently happened was that that this registration authority, who is a subsidiary of Komodo, had a DLL, which itself was empowered to log on to their servers and issue certificates, so this guy who is believed to be an Iranian hacker um, oh, there was some news there was some there was some speculation that this was state sponsored that th- that this was based in you know like like Iran was was hacking uh, SSL in order to get certificates that were you could be used to spy on people it's possible. really it, it's it's possible but it's it's Again, we generally like the most feasible explanation, and it looked like it was one guy because if this was state-sponsored, no one in Iran would have gone bragging about this and posting this stuff on Pastebin and and so forth. So he he reverse-engineered this DLL, which contained the username, the login username and password for the server that this... This um, regist- that this subsidiary of Komodo, apparently user trust, was using and accessed their server and was able to induce it to issue these certificates. Now, Komodo found out about it, immediately revoked these certificates. We'll talk about that quickly. Um, but then they also did find One server in Iran where the one of the login.yahoo.com certificates was in use, meaning that in like in the same way that that when Google has, you know, Google gets a certificate for themselves, they install it on their servers so that when you connect to them with over SSL, you know, that server is declaring I am Google.com and and that's the whole point of a certificate is that it, it is it is it is providing authentication in addition to encryption so it was briefly the case that a a a illegitimate server in iran at, at an ip located in iran was saying it had one of these one of these um Um, fraudulently issued certificates installed on it so that when you connected to it in Iran, it said, I am the login.yahoo.com server. And it quickly stopped answering queries after this, this revocation happened. So briefly, to talk about revocation, the idea is that certificates have a certain life. Um, I like them I, I, you know I, I complain about having to to do this every couple of years, but there's an upside to it because it it by keeping certificates relatively short lived, they will expire no matter what. And so the the burden is on the certificate licensee, the owner to, to go and renew the certificate w- with a certificate authority and get another one that's good for one, two, or three years. I think I, I think three is the most I can purchase from from uh, Verisign, which is where I get mine. But what happens if, while during that window of time that a certificate is valid, if something happens? For example, if the uh, if the certificate got away from its owner. So for example if if Google lost control of the private key that is that is what makes its certificate valid which has been signed by Verisign if if they lost their certificate then that is if anyone else could get it and install it on some random server that would be bad so if that happened Google could say to whoever signed their certificate please in please revoke This certificate, we need a new one, and we need the one that that we lost control of to be canceled. So there's a facility, there's actually two. One's called a CRL, a Certificate Revocation List, and the other is a protocol, an Online Certificate Status Protocol, OCSP. The Certificate Revocation List is is a list which a... A browser client can can download from the internet containing a long list of all the certificates which are which are revoked but otherwise valid, meaning that thank goodness for the expiration of certificates. so this list doesn't have to contain certificates which are expired. it only needs to contain them uh, the certificate serial numbers. Of certificates which would otherwise still be valid except that they have been revoked by their issuing agency. And the point is it's only by somehow proactively claim, declaring a certificate invalid that that it can be found to be invalid. That is you know if some if bad guys get it then you know they're going to want to use it. So somehow we need to tell our browsers no longer trust this certificate however, still trust other certificates issued by the same certificate authority. Now, and of course, we've talked about the controversy of the fact that there's more than 1,500 certificate authorities wandering around the globe now, all equally trusted by our browsers. Okay, the second mechanism, this online certificate status protocol, that's a different approach um, where... Before trusting a connection, the browser will reach out and and on in real time check to see that a certificate is valid. So that's something that some browsers support that you can turn on to, 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 to check it on the fly. The problem is both of these approaches fail open, meaning if your browser... Yeah is unable to obtain information that the certificate is bad, it assumes it's good. So part of a spoofed attack, a spoofing attack, would be, for example, a man-in-the-middle attack where somebody would, would intercept your communication. Well, we've talked about this in Wi-Fi scenarios or hotel scenarios or you know, state-level scenarios. They would intercept your connection and they would proxy that your your access to the internet they would when they saw you trying to go to login.yahoo.com they would they would respond they they would accept the connection respond using their fraudulent and revoked certificate which your browser doesn't know it's is revoked when your browser tries to authenticate on the fly that revocation all they have to do is drop the connection all they have to do is return a a a four oh four or a five hundred server error or bad URL something that that blocks your browser from getting um, a a an affirmation or denial and all browsers currently accept the certificate even though technically it's been revoked. This is regarded as. A, as a, a known and serious problem with the whole revocation process is that the the, the same mechanism that would have a, a bad guy able to to pull off a, a a useful exploit with the certificate unless they were able to spoof DNS, which is the other way you'd do that, is to get someone to go to a bad I, IP address by, by spoofing DNS. Um, but... Any kind of a man-in-the-middle approach would still allow, would still have your browser believing that the certificate was valid because it wouldn't know otherwise. And um, when we step back from all this, here's the fundamental problem. When you think about the way our whole SSL browser security web authentication system functions, there's the, the fundamental Technical design is fragile because any certificate authority can certify to any user that any server owns any domain name. Therefore, the consequences of a misplaced trust decision are about as bad as they could be. And stated another way, the, real, the problem is a structural one. There are 1,500 certificate authority certificates controlled by about 650 organizations. And every time we connect to an HTTPS web server or exchange email encrypted by TLS, we implicitly trust every one of those certificate authorities. Because think about it, we've got these, as we've talked on this podcast, a huge block of certificate authorities we trust. We will, when we receive a certificate claiming the identity of a server we want to connect to, it is signed by one, any one of those, meaning that, that any one of those can sign A certificate and we will trust it so we are trusting all of them okay
0: yeah wrong way to do it obviously
1: I I read during the research and uh, uh, for this one interesting concept that I just I haven't even had a chance to think through enough but the concept was is a different way of structuring the system where the people having the certificates are for it's, we it it turns things around. Instead of having a multi-year expiration, you have a multi-day expiration. Ah, your all of your web server certificates expire every three days, huh. and then you. So it's necessary for you, and this obviously would be automated in some hopefully good fashion. It's necessary for you to go out and renew, you know, you have your web server establish a trust relationship with a certificate authority and dynamically renew your certificate every other day so that you're sure you're going to get it renewed before the one you have expires or renew it every day or something. So, but but it's sort of an I haven't again, I haven't had a chance to think that all the way through, but that's an interesting completely different approach to ...to building this trust. You know, fundamentally the problem is we we trust too many people. I mean, trust is is too widespread. And there was a blog posting asking, well, you know, do I really need to trust um, a certificate authority in China? And, no. And I really don't think I do. No. I mean, I, I'm not going to Chinese websites because I can't read them anyway. So why do I have that certificate authority in my browser... Which is subjecting me to the danger that of, of of going to a spoofed website using a you know you you using a domain a super popular domain oh and that brings up one other issue there was a bunch of of backflack aimed at Komodo as you can imagine and one of the real good criticisms was wait a minute you know not all web domains are created equal arguably live.com, google.com, yahoo.com, microsoft.com. I mean there are you know in in any in any statistical distribution there's a relatively small set of super high value domains. Right. I mean major focuses of the internet and you would really think that all certificate authorities should be like have a, a a database of absolutely, you know, bells and whistles should go off. Sirens should sound if anyone tries to register any of this set of really high profile domains. Why was it that a sub, sub some, you know, second tier certificate authority even had the ability to issue certificates for for you know www.google.com then you know and i mean it really does say that this infrastructure could be
0: hugely strengthened well i'm glad you you talked about it um it's you know it's uh, i could see why they haven't changed things you know you 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 change something like that it breaks a lot of things oh my goodness and who do you call this for support (laughs) you know so i could see why there's a lot of pressure not to change things but uh boy that's a mess
1: Actually, though it is it is the case that just changing that that certificate expiration model, nothing else breaks if you change that. I have to think about
0: that some more. Yeah, let's, yeah. I'm sure. Well, I'll tell you what. Next week, feedback episode. <laughs> yes. Guess what? We're going to probably hear from some people who have some thoughts about that. Maybe, maybe you know, you get to you get to vet Steve's idea, and maybe uh, we'll get an A plus. Grc dot com slash feedback is a place to go if you have a question for Steve. Uh, we'll answer uh, as many as we can on the next show. Uh, every other show we do that. Uh, while you're there, get that uh, copy of SpinRight. You've been you've been holding out on. You know, it's well worth it. If you have hard drives, you need SpinRight. The just the best hard drive maintenance utility. Nothing better. GRC gibsonresearchcorporation.com. dot uh, com. You'll also find a lot of free stuff there, including sixteen kilobit versions of this show, uh, transcripts of this show, full show notes going back two hundred ninety five episodes. It's all there at grc.com. Steve, as he mentioned, is on Twitter at S-G-G-R-C. He's also got a corporate uh, account at Gibson Research. I don't know if you do anything more on the pads, but he's got at S-G-P-A-D as well. Follow them all. Follow all three. Why not? And Steve, I apologize for the interruption from my son. And we <laughs> will find the missing clock that was fun. <laughs> I will talk to you next week for a Q&A. Thank you, Steve Gibson. We'll see you next time on Security Now. Security Now.